Good morning, church. There we go. A few of you are with me. We were talking this morning out with some of our greeters, and they said this is just kind of a slow-moving, gray start of the fall day. It's beautiful. So, it, yeah. It's beautiful. Coming, coming from the desert, they love clouds. Not so much. We'll see if they still sing that song in February when they haven't seen the sun for weeks. It is good for us to be here. I am Pastor Ted, Associate Pastor here at Eagle, and uh, it is a a joy for me to stand before you and and bring the Word. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2 as we continue our walk through. Um, If you're unfamiliar, Nehemiah is just a little bit, it's in the Old Testament, just a little bit before Psalms. Open your Bible right in half and then move a little bit towards the front and you will find it. Uh, Nehemiah, as we know, as we've heard the last couple weeks as we've walked through this, was a cupbearer to Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. And that was an important position, uh, kind of part of his security team, if you will. His job was to bring the wine, bring the drink to the king uh, with the promise that it was not poisoned, that it would not kill him, Um, because that was one quick way to get rid of a rival king. Uh, was to poison food, poison drink. So he was the cupbearer, very important position. And while he was cupbearer, we remember he had received some really disturbing news that the city of Jerusalem, the city he loved, the city of God, the city he had never lived in, possibly his parents had never lived in, was lying in ruins. And that the people are distressed, the walls were broken, the gates were burned. And immediately over this distress of the city that represented the life of God, represented the character of God, immediately Nehemiah goes into prayer. He begins praying, and it's the kind of prayer that we have been calling travailing prayer. The prayer where we we cry out, where where our heart and our guts are just wrapped up in what what is going on, what we need to see God do, how we need to see God move. Maybe it's in a situation, circumstance, a person's life, whatever it is that grabs us at a deep, deep level is when we travail in prayer over it. We cry out to God. Eric has said this statement. I don't know if it originated with him or not. I'll give him credit for it. Um, I really like it. It resonated with me. He said, travailing prayer is when the intensity of our prayers matches the intensity of our current reality. That when reality around us is so devastating, so stressful, so uh, hard, that our prayers become that much, that, that intense to match the intensity of the reality. A part of travailing prayer is, I'll give you another word, prevailing prayer. Prevailing prayer means that we travail until we prevail. We travail, we cry out, we, until we get the answer, until God moves, until we see him do what he's going to do. And it's in the waiting. It's in the travailing and the prevailing that makes prayer so hard. Sometimes we give up because we don't always get an answer right away. Sometimes we just get a nugget. We get an idea that, okay, God's in this. He's here. He's moving. I sense this. I don't know what he's going to do. I'm going to continue to pray. I'm going to continue to travail. I'm going to continue to pour my heart, my guts out to him in this matter, in this issue. Sometimes we get silence. Sometimes we can go for days or weeks or months not really sensing that God is hearing That's the hard part of travail, and that's what makes prevail difficult. It is in the waiting, however. It is in the prevailing that we can easily lose faith. We begin to doubt. We begin to wonder what God is doing. Is God doing anything? Let me give you some hope this morning. If you've been travailing over a loved one, over a situation, over a circumstance, whatever the case may be. If you've been travailing and you've been doing it longer than two weeks when we started this series, God is doing something in your waiting. 
in the waiting, in the silence, God is working. At least what I see that he did with Nehemiah. I see that he was moving with Nehemiah, was, was in the travailing, the waiting, that God begins to shape Nehemiah's prayers, begins to shape his thoughts, begin to shape his attitudes toward this thing for him, the, the state of Jerusalem, for you, whatever the case may be, that you're walking through, travailing through, Find hope in the fact that it is the travailing, the waiting, that is not a cruel trick, but there is purpose behind it. The waiting is relationship building. The waiting is spiritual formation in your own life. It's strengthening of who you are. It's preparing you, getting you ready for the answer. See, sometimes we start into a prayer, we start into a, a situation or a circumstance, and we bring it to God, and we want him to do it right now, change it right now. And he goes, you're not ready for me to change it right now. You're going to need to travail for a while. I'm going to prepare you through those prayers, through your reading, through your, your heart pouring out to me. I'm going to begin to shape you, mold you, change you, transform you. And then you'll be ready to do what I'm about to do. Find hope in the fact that it's in this travailing that God's preparation happens because prayer is relationship building. It's strengthening the relationship for what comes next. Tyler Statton, Eric's quoted him a couple times, says in his book, Pray Like Monks, Live Like Fools, says, prayer in any form by anybody is God's invitation to pull up a chair to the table and enjoy restful, intimate, unbroken conversation with the triune God. Or as Jesus succinctly said, knock and the door will be open to you. Prayer is an invitation into relationship, into community with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an invite to the kitchen table. Some of our best conversations have happened around the kitchen table. It's probably one of the, the, the farthest into the house that maybe a guest gets. You know, you meet them on the front porch. Some people you just talk to on the front porch, right? That guy on the, on the Segway that's going from door to door selling something, he knocks on the door, you open it up. I open it up, I go out, and I shut the door behind me. We're just going to stand right here on the porch and have this conversation. There is zero relationship between me and you. Some people, when we have that, they may come and we invite them in, and they get to the entryway. They get to the, the, the kind of, you know, it's not really a room. It's where they hang the coat. Maybe the coat closet's there. Maybe there's a table. Maybe there's a chair. I don't know. But you just kind of invite them in, and you stand there and talk. And then there's people that you invite in and you take them all the way to the living room. You have them sit down on the couch, a little more comfortable, a little more intimate. But then you have relationships where, and this is what I call the, they have the refrigerator rules, right? They can come into your house and they can walk into your kitchen and they can open your refrigerator and they can get themselves something to drink. That's how familiar you are with them. And you don't think anything about it. We talk in small group about establishing community within our group to where everyone in the group has refrigerator rights. They can walk in, help themselves. Jesus is inviting you into his kitchen to pour out your heart to him. That's travailing prayer. And it's in the waiting. It's in those conversations. It's in that continual going to the kitchen, going to the kitchen, going to the kitchen that he begins to shape you, prepare you for what he wants to do. And so what we find here in Nehemiah chapter 1, we looked at a couple weeks ago, is that when he heard the distressing news, he immediately goes to prayer. He immediately cries out. And we found out last week that he was doing that for four to five months. Chapter 1 to chapter 2, there's a four- or five-month gap between those two. That he travailed over the condition of the city of Jerusalem. People in distress, walls are broken, gates are burned. 
And now in chapter 2, we get a sense that the intense travailing of prayer maybe has passed or is passing. And now is the time for action. His life, for the most part, didn't change. He was still the cupbearer to the king. He went to work in the palace every day. He carried out his duties with the same excellence he had always had. But his prayer time carried a greater intimacy, a greater sense of urgency, and was resulting in a transformation of who he was for what God was going to do. Father, this morning I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word, to your truth this morning. That, Father, we would sense that in the midst of our travailing, a sense that you are working, that you are on this, that you have this. Father, may we be diligent. May we prevail and persevere to see you move to see you act, to call us into that action, into the solution, into the answer to pray. Father, this morning, your Holy Spirit, continue to fill this place. Continue to speak to each one of us individually where we are, into our own current reality. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 2, I'll begin reading with verse 1. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. That's significant. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? King said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat and Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite officially heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. One day, things changed for Nehemiah. The, the travailing, the, the inner turmoil, the distress began to show on his face. He had been able to hide it up to now, but his countenance showed the result of five months of travailing. If you're really travailing, pouring out, if your heart is, is wrenched around something, something that God, you're longing for God to do, it's going to show. Five months of tears. Five months of tears for broken walls and burned gates. And the king one day noticed the sadness. And I said this is significant because palace protocol demanded that servants always look happy in the presence of the king. You don't want to bring the king down with your minor issues. If you were in the presence of the king, you put it on. Real or not, fake, it didn't matter. You were happy in the presence of the king. Nehemiah could not hide it any longer. And that's why he asked uh, if he was sick, because the only reason to not look happy is if you're ill. 
That was your only excuse in the presence of the king for not having a smile on your face and a step in your walk. The prayers that were once a concern for the city had now taken a hold of Nehemiah's person. They had become so personal that the burden transformed his face. What God was doing in Nehemiah had made an appearance through the lines on his face. What God was doing inside was beginning to show just in his countenance. That is what travailing in prayer can do to you. And Nehemiah explains the reason. Burned gates and broken walls. And then the king asks the most unlikely question that a king could ask his cupbearer. What do you want? What do you want me to do? And Nehemiah, notice, didn't have an immediate answer. He was just turmoiled over the, over the issue that was happening in Jerusalem. He hadn't really gone all the way through with a plan. So with no immediate answer, spending five months crying out to the person who did have an answer, we see the one little line there that says, and so I prayed to God. King, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. I need to check with the guy who's going to do all the work. I need to go back to God who I've been crying out to and see what it is he wants to do. I do believe that those five months of travailing began to plant some ideas and thoughts in Nehemiah's mind, but it wasn't solidified. Where he wasn't sure, is this really God's plan or is this just what I want to do? So his go-to is he prays. And in that prayer, God began connecting the dots, revealing his plan and the part Nehemiah was going to play in restoring the city. We can't lose sight of the importance of verse 4 in this whole story. Five months of travailing prayer, and now he's on the precipice of this might be something. The king is asking me, what do you want me to do? I need to go back to God. God, I don't know what to do. I'm not 100% sure of what you're doing. I don't know for sure. It's been five months. There seems to be radio silence at times. Is this it? Is the, the waiting is hard. The tears have been flowing. God, what do you want? So I prayed to the God of heaven to answer the king's question. I can't help but think that his prayer was simply that, God, in this moment, what do you want? How many times in our prayers do we tell God what we want? Really, that's the basis for prayer, right? Just to come to him and tell him what we want. Even in travailing, we say, Lord, I want you to do this, 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 and this. And then it would all be better if you just did this, 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 and this. And we fail to ask what he wants. We fail to listen to his plan for the fixing of the broken walls and the burnt gates. And so somewhere in the travailing, we need to have listening. We need to ask God, what do you want? Ask the question sometimes to God, God, what do you want in this situation? And if you got exactly what you wanted, what would it look like? And then listen. Allow him to begin transforming your thoughts. Allow him to begin transforming your ideas. Allow him to begin to shape you. I think that's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah was about to move from travailing prayer to travailing action. I don't know how much time passed from verse 4 to verse 5. I don't know how much time it passed from I, I prayed to God and then I went to the king. I don't know what time frame was in there. But Nehemiah got his answer. And here's what that looked like for Nehemiah. He said, I can't say with confidence that this is how God is going to work in your situation. I wish I could. 
But we, we can never limit God to working the exact same way each time that how he did it for Nehemiah is exactly how he's going to do it from you. I, if I could do that, I'd give you here's three steps. Do it. All I can say is travail, prevail, listen. But here's what it looked like for Nehemiah. And I think there are some principles that we might find helpful in our own travailing through his story. And here's the, the line for today. This is, if you remember nothing, walk away with this line. God's vision requires God's provision and the people's revision. Okay? God's vision, what he's about to reveal to Nehemiah, is going to require God's provision. He's going to supply what's needed, and it's going to require our revision, our, our reorienting our life to that vision. So let's look first at God's vision as he, as he throws it here. He says God's vision meant two things. It, meant, it means that we have to have a clear vision of what is wrong. Nehemiah had heard the stories from his brother. He'd been praying for four to five months. Now he had to get a personally involved in the problem and see it firsthand, right? If you, if you hear someone say, oh, it's horrible, it's horrible, it's horrible, sometimes you go and you're like, that's really not that bad. You're a little overdramatic. And it could have been that Nehemiah's like, I know my brother. He, he's got a flair for the dramatic. It's probably not as bad as it could be. You also have people that make light of everything. That's no big deal. Okay, your house is literally on fire. It's all right. It, it'll go out eventually. <laughs> True, right? Once everything is burnt to the ground, it will go out eventually. Nehemiah says, I have to see this reality for myself. I need to see exactly what we're dealing with. And that's where we are at. We have to see what is the reality? What is the, the current reality of the circumstances of the world? of the thing that we are prevailing for. We need to be able to see it the way God sees it. We need to be able to see it for what it truly is. And so we see in verse 11, follow with me in verse 11, Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. That's God's vision, put it in his heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and reentered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because I, as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. We can look around and see the seriousness of the spiritual lostness of our country, of our nation. We can see where it's heading. Forty years ago, the church kind of got on this thing of starting seeker churches. You know what I'm talking about? to be a seeker church, seeker-sensitive services within our churches, to, to reach those who were seeking God, who maybe had no, no understanding of church. And when they walked in, everything was just weird to them, and they were speaking a language we call Christianese, using words I'd never heard of, singing songs, talking about blood all the time, what was up with all of that, and, and crucifixion. And uh, it was just uh, all stuff that the world wasn't sure. And so we created seeker sensitive services to where we kind of toned down some of those things and, and, and kind of created the service so that it would be more inviting, more welcoming to them. I don't think anything wrong with that. But our current reality right now is no one is seeking God. No one is trying to figure it out who God is. No one's figuring out truth. What we're doing now is we're running away from God. We're, we're avoiding. You bring up God, and it's like conversation over. No one wants to know. Many are even abandoning him. Those who, who were in the church, maybe they came through in the seeker-sensitive, and once they started reading the truth, 
The deeper things, the hard stuff, they're like, I'm out. I like this spiritual idea. I like the way that makes me feel, but I'm out. Now the largest group, spiritually, the largest group in our country has been called their, their, the term the nuns. Not N-U-N, N-O-N-E, the nuns, meaning they have no affiliation with anything outside of themselves spiritually. None affiliation. No church, no, they, they're away from all that. Now their spiritual is all about them on the inside. They'll deal with it with whatever being is out there as they want to deal with it. When someone says, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, that's a red flag for me. Because that means I'm not looking beyond myself to figure this out. That's our current reality. That's the, the, that is what is wrong where we are right now. No one is seeking God. They're just seeking self. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI said this a few years ago, I think maybe 10 years ago. The spiritual crisis overtaking the West is the most serious since the fall of the Roman Empire. The light of Christianity is flickering out all over the West. There are people alive to do it today who may live to see the effective death of Christianity within our civilization. By God's mercy, the faith may continue to flourish in the global south and China, but barring a dramatic reversal of current trends, it will all but disappear entirely from Europe and North America. This name may not be the end of the world, but the end of a world, and only the willfully blind would deny it. That's where he feels our culture is heading to a, a godlessness that, that rivals the fall of the Roman Empire. As you read verses 11, and 15, 11 through 15, we see that you know, he went to Jerusalem and he scouted it out for himself. Look around. Scout out society for yourself. Don't turn a blind eye to the issues of morality of sexuality, of ethics that we are facing, and, and many of the church are giving in. As Eric says, they're mirroring, mirroring. I speak for a living. Society in their own minds. As they're trying to figure it out, as they're, as they're developing, as they're going through spiritual transformation, they aren't just taking from God. They aren't just travailing in prayer for themselves. They're, they're, they're taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and, the, and they're creating this thing that makes them feel good. Mirroring the culture. And we have the, the responsibility to point them to the window to the, that, that points to this new way of life, that a better way, an, another king and another kingdom I love that picture that people are looking in the mirror and we need to get them to look out, outside of themselves, to gaze upon the face of God. Sometimes we have to see it for ourselves. We have to face the reality ourselves. We can't just hear it on the news, pop up in a conversation, read it on some social media. We can't fully appreciate the problems until we are in them, until we see them, until we maybe experience them. One of the things that's a problem right now is the whole sex trafficking. I know many have a heart and a burden for that. We can't fully appreciate the problem that it is until we spend time with a group like Remember New or Destiny Rescue that, that is all about rescuing kids. We can't fully appreciate the problems facing the foster care system and, and domestic problems until we hang out with Family Hope or Isaiah 117, two of our partners that are, are, are all in on the issue of rescuing kids. We can't fully travail with the lostness of a friend or family member until we have spent time with them, until we've listened to them until we seek to understand their life, their hurts, why they think the way they think, hearing the questions that they ask for themselves, why they have walked away 
from church. Why they say I've not walked away from Jesus, I've just walked away from his body. We can't fully acknowledge the current reality as real, but it will have little impact on us if we remain outside. We have to get in, have to figure out what is it that is going on. Travailing prayer will begin to open eyes to that. So a clear vision of what is wrong. We also need a clear vision of what God wanted done. Verse 11 says, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. That's God's vision. God's putting ideas in his mind. Here's the problem. You see the problem. God's going to begin putting ideas in your mind as you're travailing in prayer, as you are prevailing in prayer. God is going to put ideas in your mind that's going to be part of the solution, part of what he wants to do. God had a plan, and Nehemiah was a part of that plan. I believe this was shaped in the travailing, revealed a little bit at a time. God was preparing him, getting him ready. I think travailing prayer often results in a call to action. At some point, we get up from our prayer closet and we move out to do. That doesn't mean we end in prayer, right? Prayer's not over at this point. We can read throughout the rest of the book of Nehemiah, there's seven or eight times that it says, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and we prayed, and we, because God's still in it, God's still moving. God's still using us, directing us. But as we travail, God shapes our wants, he shapes our prayers, he shapes our vision to his vision. Part of travailing is that willingness to be a part of the answer. God, what do you want me to do? A willingness to obedience. Because it would have been easy at some level for Nehemiah to just stayed cupbearer of the king in the palace and just continued to pray about the destruction of Jerusalem. It would have been easy for him to just sit in the palace where he was well taken care of, well liked, trusted, and just continue to pray for poor Jerusalem and hope somebody fixed it. But all that travailing began to change his heart toward the situation, began to change his, and get him more and more involved in the reality of what was happening. God began shaping him, shaping Nehemiah's vision to his own vision. I have found when God gives you a burden for something, it may very well lead to you getting involved in the solution. Very much. If you've got a burden over some topic, something, some reality that we're facing in the world, there's a good chance that God is moving you, preparing you to get involved in the solution. Oftentimes, people approach me as the pastor over the last 35 years. This has happened I don't know how many times. And they say, you know what we need in the church? You know what we need to do in the church? You know what ministry we need in the church? I will always listen to that conversation, always. I will always listen to whatever they are thinking because I'm assuming they've been praying and they see the reality of what it is and part of the solution may be this ministry, may be this new thing, may be this way we need to do things. I'm always going to listen, but here's my first response back. Do you want to lead it? I've had so many ministries die right there. Because what they're doing is, Pastor, I think you need to get involved in what I think is important. And my response is, I think you need to get involved because God has made it important to you. I had a man that came up to me in a church and said, Pastor, we need a men's ministry. I totally agreed. We do. When do you want to start it? Well... Okay. Six, seven months later, Pastor, I, I, still, I think we need a men's ministry. I do too. When do you want to start it? You go find two or three other guys with, with the heart and the burden that you have and let's, let's get it on paper. Let's begin to give some life to this. 
Crickets. Silence. About a year after that, I had two or three other guys come to me and say, Pastor, I think we need to start a men's ministry, and here's what I think it looks like, and here's what I think we ought to do, and we've been praying about this, and we've outlined a format, and I said, let's run. Let's do it. And you want to know the amazing thing? The guy that I had had that original conversation with never once came. He had not travailed. He just thought it'd be good for him to have something to occasionally go to whenever the urge hit him that he would have a men's ministry to fall on. God began to shape Nehemiah's will and his heart towards the solution of rebuilding the walls and the gates. If you pray about burned gates and broken walls long enough, you're led to do something about them. God is going to be able to is going to begin to create that desire within you. God's going to bend your heart toward his vision. So we need a clear vision of what is wrong. We need a clear vision of what God wants to do. But then God's vision requires God's provision. Think about Nehemiah, cupbearer. It's all he's ever done. Now you're going to go build the wall. You're going to go build the gates. Nehemiah was going to need some help if he was going to do this thing because this was a huge task. If Nehemiah was going to be obedient to the call and, and go rebuild the walls, God was going to have to provide a lot of things for this to happen. Nehemiah began moving ahead with confidence that God would. First thing he's going to need is he's going to need favor with the king. Cupbearers don't retire. Cupbearers don't resign. Cupbearers don't find a better offer somewhere else. If you found a cupbearer who you could trust, you kept him on staff for life. And that was a part of his prayer in chapter 1, and that's a part of his prayer now. Remember, being sick was the only excuse and he says after this, he said when, I, when he knew he had to go to the king, he, was, he said, I was very much afraid. This was not unlike Esther. Remember the story of Esther? A couple books here before Nehemiah. Esther was a, a Jewish woman, beautiful, who, who caught the eye of the king. Now that king during ex- Esther's time was Xerxes. That was Artaxerxes' father. A few decades maybe, or at least a few years prior to Nehemiah coming on the scene, Esther was seeking an audience with the king, and she was concerned because you didn't seek an audience with the king. You accepted an invite into the king's presence. You didn't ask to see the king. The king asked to see you. And here's Nehemiah going i got to have this conversation with the king. And the only, the only way to, to stop being cupbearer was you died naturally or you died by the king's word, king's command. That was your only two ways out. And Nehemiah knew that. And so he was going to have to have favor with the king. God would have to make Artaxerxes favorable toward his servant. And the simple question, what do you want? was proof that God had moved in Artaxerxes' life and his heart, and Nehemiah could speak freely. And the first thing he says, I want, is I want time off. (laughs) You don't just ask for time off as a cupbearer. But God, in his moving in Artaxerxes' life, Artaxerxes doesn't respond with, no, you can't, there's no way, you can't do this. He says, how long will you be gone? How long will you need? Now, Nehemiah had an answer for this. He had done the math. And we don't have his answer. We don't know exactly how long he said. He just says that he gave him a time. Now, as we read through Nehemiah, we found that Nehemiah spent 12 years in Jerusalem, and there's no record of him ever going back to Artaxerxes to be the cupbearer. I don't know what time frame he gave him, but I'm guessing there may have been some renegotiations along the way to the point where he was released as cupbearer. 
And then Nehemiah says, you know what? I, I'm going to need some supplies, God. You're going to have to provide this. This wall is going to be 50, <clears throat> eventually, I don't know that Nehemiah built it this size, but eventually this wall is going to be 50 feet high, 12 to 15 feet thick, and two miles around the city. And I got nothing. I've got nothing. And so he asked the king for letters of recommendation, letters to the governors, letters to Asaph, the, 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 the head forest ranger. And God provided. Verse 8 says, And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. I was asking for the moon here. And God was in it. God was providing. And I don't know, but one of the first things that I would have been concerned about was I don't have the skill set to build a wall. I'm a cupbearer. I have no calluses on my hands. I've never physically worked a day in my life, and now I'm going to go build. I don't know how to do that. God, I'm going to need skills, or I'm going to need people around me, and I think next week we're going to look at kind of how God answered that, how God provided the workers, how he was going to get it done. But in all of this, he, Nehemiah knew that all the things God needed to provide didn't keep him from saying yes, didn't keep him from setting out. He just trusted God. God called me to do this. I know I'm going to need to do it. By faith, here we go. God's going to provide. Nehemiah was being called into a ministry that he didn't have time for, he didn't have resources for, and he didn't have the skills for. But here we go. That, that's, a, that's a scary place to be, and yet an exciting place to be, because you know God's going to be in it. God's going to do it. God's going to have to do it, or it's not going to get done. So God's vision requires God's provision and the people's revision. Here's what I mean by that. When God makes the vision clear or even semi-clear, our lives have to conform to the vision. We have to reorient ourselves, our lives, everything about us to the vision. The current reality is one of moving away from God. Society is sprinting in the opposite direction. Many churches and believers are trying to reorient their lives by mirroring the changing times, fitting in to where society is going. Compromise the truth of God with the philosophies of this world, but we cannot do that. When we reorient our lives, we need to reorient back to who God is back to the truth of who God is. So right now, people are a mess with identity issues. They're a mess with sexual issues. They're a mess with morality, with, ex with, with ethics. People are saying if the church is to sur survive, we have to catch up to the times. We have to change our doctrinal statements to reflect more of where society is at. Change the way we do things. Rod Dreher, in his book, The Benedict Option, says, if we want to survive, this is to the church, we have to return to the roots of our faith. Both in thought and in practice, we are going to have to learn habits of the heart forgotten by believers in the West. We're going to have to change our life and our approach to life in radical ways. In short, we're going to have to be the church without compromise, no matter what it costs. That's what we're attempting to do here. No compromise. Stand on the truth. Allow God to sort it out, to, to lead us and guide us and, and do what only He can do. We can see that in the travailing. God is already calling Nehemiah, shaping him for this task, a, a process, and, he, and he, he knew that life moving forward was going to be different than cupbearer to the king. As soon as his heart was broken over the rubble, he began focusing on the promises of God. That, that, first, that, that first prayer was all about God's faithfulness and his promises. He began focusing on who God was and began asking, what would I do if God gave me the chance? What would God want from me in this? 
And as that vision began to take shape through the travailing, God shaped his dreams, shaped his desires. Your revision may not be to the extent of Nehemiah. You may not quit your job, move 700 miles away, and start a ministry of doing something you've never, ever done before or are trained to do. Maybe that's what God's going to ask of you, but maybe not. He just knew life was going to be different. He knew that, that following God was going to take a radical transformation. So when we think, what does God want? We have to reorient our lives around the vision of God, around what He is doing, His priorities, His resources, His time. It's going to require us to revision our time. How you spend 24 hours a day needs to change, needs to reflect, needs to reorient around the vision that God gives you, around the call that he's placed upon you, around that idea that he's putting in your head to, to do, to move, to act. Most of us could probably stand to do this anyways. We're very busy people. I think we're too busy. I think we're doing things God never intended for us to do, which is why we don't have time to do the things God does want us to do. Travailing prayer that's going to lead to travailing action is going to require some margin in your life time-wise. You may have to drop some things you're currently doing. You may have to drop some good things that you're currently doing. God's vision requires God's provision and the people's revision. We need to revision our resources. He knew what it was going to take. He knew that he didn't have the lumber he didn't have the stone. He didn't have any, everything it was going to take to build the walls and the gates. But he knew enough to know that he was going to need some help, that God would provide, and that he was going to have to put his all into it. So whether it's supporting ministries like our, some of our ministry partners like MigrosAid or Family Hope financially or supporting ministry, reaching the lost, building up the church, providing meals to neighbors or whatever God is calling you to do in the current reality, it's going to take resources. Looking ahead, the, the people put their own resources into the building. In chapter 7, it talks about how everyone was putting their own time and, and energy and resources financially and everything they had into rebuilding the wall. That's the church. Everything we have into what we're doing, into what God is doing. Remember Acts in the early church? People gave generously as the Lord led them, and all the needs were met. Now, I want to say this, this is, there's no guilt coming out of my mouth right now. Eagle is an incredibly generous church. We give well. You give well. Somebody can fact check me on this, but I believe that giving is currently at 94% of budget. In any church I've ever been a part of, that is unheard of in September coming off a slow summer. To have 94% of budget already being given we're, we're right there. We're where we need to be. People are faithful. God is faithful. You are answering. You are giving. That enables ministry to happen, enables us to, to be able to impact. So simply treat this as a reminder. For some, maybe this idea of giving is a new concept. But just as our daily life and our, and our time need to reflect God's vision, so do our finances. Everything we have is His we're stewards. We're, we're, care, we're, we're keepers. So we give back to him as an act of worship, as thanking him for his provision. We'll take time at the end of the service during the last song to do that. There's several ways that it can happen online, texting, boxes in the back. We carry our resources with open hands, and when God asks, we give. God is going to provide the resources to accomplish his vision, sometimes miraculously, but most of the time by just leading each of us to revision our own giving and spending habits and reorienting our finances around his vision, what he's laid upon our heart, what the outcome of travailing prayer is.
And then we need to revision our purpose. One of God's greatest resources is his people. One of God's greatest assets is his people. I'm going to have the worship team come up as we as we're preparing to wrap this all up, but we are God's greatest resources. When God's going to do something, he's going to do it through us. He doesn't have to. He wants to. He wants to involve you in the vision, in the ministry. He doesn't want you to just be a Sunday morning only, come, sit, soak, and go back out into the current reality. He wants to use you in the current reality. He wants to shape you, to give you a vision for for how he wants to use and, and work through you. He could do it on his own. He chooses to do it through us. That's part of the travailing. God's vision requires God's provision and the people's revision. Now, I so wish this were a formula. I wish I could stand up here and give you step one, step two, step three, go. It's not going to work that way. It's going to come after travailing. I wish I could say if you just pray for five months, God's going to show you what it is. Some of you have been praying for five years. Some of you have been praying for decades. Stay on it. Travail. Ask God, what do you want? What do you want from me? And then the next step is obedient action. To step out into that. So I don't know how long you have to travail. I don't know how long it's going to take for God to to plant that vision in you. But if we are listening, God's going to move. There's going to be some incredible things that happen in your life, in the life of Eagle, in the life of this community, because God also cares about the rubble. And he wants us to enter in. Father, I pray this morning that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, Father, we would not grow complacent in the world or with the world around us. Father, you would give us courage. You would give us boldness. You would give us strength of spirit to travail in prayer, to stick with it, allowing you to change us. Father, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to know? How do we need to reorient our life to what you are about to do? Father, give us the courage to step. Give us the courage that when you show us, we would be obedient. To your glory. To the impact of this world. To the salvation of many, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.